I have someone really special to introduce, so come on up here, Brian. Uh, our, our, uh, our preacher today is my brother-in-law, Brian Lucas. Give him, give him a warm welcome. So um, I just always, always look for opportunities to partner in ministry with, with Brian. Uh, we sometimes we do, we'll do like a, I think we've done like a women's conference and then like a men's breakfast. And so, and just now we have an excuse to like meet together as fellow pastors in the, in the valley. He, so you've been a pastor for um, five years, the campus pastor over at River Valley Murphy and your wife, which is. So this is my wife's brother, just so you know, like trying to put that together. And so his wife, Ashley's here, his sister-in-law, and his girls, you see one of them, Kiara. So anyway, just, yeah, give him a warm greeting as you see him. Yeah. Let me pray. Let me pray for you real quick, Fred. Thanks. God, thank you so much uh, just for a, um, the way that you, uh, you orchestrate things. Uh, personally, Lord, I, I've, I've just uh, loved the idea of um, partnering with Brian in, in any, any way that, that we can. Not only that, but unity between churches in this valley. We want to see that. We want the world to look upon us, even as different churches, and go, wow, they love one another, and there's something about them. So we just pray that, um, that the world would see that. But we pray for this time and for Brian right now that you would give him uh, clarity of thought. You give him a joy in just uh, declaring the truths of your word and a confidence in your word. And I pray for the soil of every heart um, that we would receive your word with meekness and that you would bear fruit in us. So, Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. If you have your Bible with you, I would invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 25. That's where we are going to start. It is a privilege uh, to be here with you this morning, and like Ryan said, it's a special joy to get to be here uh, with my sister and brother-in-law. Um, you know, in the, what I would say, the way, way back days for us, before kids and before marriage, we actually got to serve together in ministry uh, with students and in worship and uh, even uh, under, under Bob Bonner's uh, pastorage uh, back in the day, so um, feels a little bit full circle to get to be here and uh, just share with you this morning. And even though you already know this, I, I, I feel like I should say, uh, your pastor Sam is an awesome guy. And it was actually Ryan and Bree who a few years ago uh, just really made a point like, you really got to meet Sam. Like, we really want to get your families together. And uh, I'm really glad they did because in the years since, uh, I, I have just grown in, uh, in respect and appreciation uh, for what Sam is doing. Uh, what God's doing through Sam, and I'm not just saying that because I think he's going to listen to this back when he gets back into town, but Sam, if you do listen to this uh, when you get back, uh, keep up the good work, brother. Uh, so Sam gave me kind of an open field of what to share this morning, and so uh, what, I, what I'm going to try to do is share something that has sort of impacted me personally uh, in, in study of the Word and, and try to sort of connect that. I know you guys have been studying through Hebrews. So um, it'll be maybe kind of Hebrews adjacent. We're going to uh, start in Exodus and get there. So uh, the first thing I'd like to do is read Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9, and start there. The Lord said to Moses, 
speak to the people of Israel that they take a, for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breast piece. Verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Uh, pray with me for a moment. Well, you Heavenly Father, uh, again, we want to just be thankful for the time that you've given us this morning. God, we, we want to thank you and praise you for your word uh, that is trustworthy, uh, that is reliable. Uh, so we ask that you would, uh, you would reveal things to us, you would illuminate the text to us, and we pray this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a city called Cusco that is in the South, uh, uh, South American country of Peru. It was at one time the capital of the Incan Empire, although it is not the present-day capital. Um, in its heyday, it is believed that this city was sort of shaped like a jaguar. And uh, at the head of where the jaguar would be was, is this sort of megalithic stone complex uh, called Sacsayhuaman. You can see here. Archaeologists believe that the ruins that we see are really only about 20% of what the structure actually originally was. So sort of just like the foundation stones. Now, like uh, much of the stonework that we find in South America, it, it was terraced. And some of the stones that they used are just massive. Uh, some of them are, are over 28 feet tall. Estimates range from 120 all the way up to 400 tons, which is like 16 times the size of some of the Stonehenge stones. Uh, they were quarried from two sites, one nine miles, the other 20 miles away. Here's a fun fact. The Inca did not use the wheel. Most likely, they didn't need to develop a wheel because they didn't have oxen or anything that could pull a cart. Also, as steep as things are, it wouldn't have been much help anyway. Now get this. Uh, that's not even really the most interesting part of this. Um, the craziest thing is these stones have no mortar in between them. They're just, they're stacked together. And they fit together so tightly, you can't even fit a piece of paper in between them. One particular rock on the outer wall uh, had to be fitted against 12 different other stone blocks. And all of them have uh, no room in between them. How did they do that? You know, the, the short answer is nobody knows. Like, literally, there's not con consensus on, on how this was done. Now, to add even more intrigue to this story, um, the Inca don't even claim to originally have built it. Moved into it, yes. Added on to it, yes. But don't claim to be the original builders. Interesting. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, and I will say, uh, at where I pastor Adam Murphy, uh, there is a gentleman that was born in Peru and uh, moved up here. And, uh, and, and he verified this is one of the theories even that they have down there. There's another theory. And that theory is aliens. <laughs> so hopefully I'm not the only person in the room who's ever been sucked into an episode of Ancient Aliens on the History Channel. 
I can't say Giorgio here has convinced me yet, but it's entertaining to watch. So, um, so the, point, the point that I want to make here, though, is this massive complex, all of the time and the energy and, uh, I mean, likely the blood that was spilt to build this thing was originally believed to be a fortress. But the more they studied it, the more they excavated it, the more they realized um, it was more for ritual. Uh, there were temple places and altars. This was for worship. And I think that when we think about many of the most sort of awe-inspiring uh, places in the world like this, um, th some of the literal wonders of the world, whether it's Temple of Artemis or uh, the statue of Zeus at Olympia, they were places where people could worship their gods. And, you, and so you might be wondering where I'm going with this. So in Exodus 25, the God of Israel, who uh, we believe the Bible teaches us is to be the most high God, the God above all other gods, gives his specially chosen, miraculously delivered and saved people instructions to build him a place where they could worship him, a place where their, meters, their leaders could come and meet with him. And it's a tent, not a palace, not an elaborate stonework compound, a tent called the tabernacle. Now, on the face of it, that is a little different. Now, especially, keep in mind that, that the, the people just came from Egypt. So, I mean, they came from ground zero of, you know, the Great Pyramid. It's still there, right? All these other grand sites uh, in the uh, Egyptian religions, the temples at Karnak and Luxor, the Valley of the Kings, all of these things uh, built for the Egyptian gods, and then, it, you know, sort of the story of the Exodus, which is God miraculously rescuing his people out of Egypt. Essentially, God going to war against the gods of Egypt and, and uh, brings them through the Red Sea and asks them to build him a tent. No impressive monument that's going to stand for millennia. Nothing that's going to outlast the erosion and wars and earthquakes. I think it's a fair question to ask, and I, th and, and I think the, the reason it's important to ask is because this is not just an isolated question of, you know, why in this one place, in this one time, did God ask his people to build this one thing? But I think there's a truth here that is an important part of how we understand the story of the entire Bible. Like the movement of human history as we understand it through a biblical lens, like this is important for that. The point of the tabernacle was not uh, to show off to the rest of the world. The point of the tabernacle was actually the relationship between God and his people. Uh, it, it was a way that God was going to keep his people close to his heart. And we see that in verse 8. Uh, the point of the tabernacle was for God's presence to be with his people. And even how, the, how it was to be built and the furniture that was going to go into it. All of those things communicated to the people something about who God was and communicated something about their relationship uh, to him, the relationship that they were entering into with him. Now, uh, this covenant that the people were entering into was a huge deal. Um, there were a lot of unknowns on the horizon. 
But there's also no doubt that God was the one who, who, who saved. God was the one who acted on their behalf. And God was going to be the one to bring them to the promised land. Um, I've got the privilege uh, occasionally to officiate a wedding. And usually we do some premarital uh, counseling. We do uh, uh, something to help people prepare for that kind of commitment. Um, there, there's, there's learning that needs to happen. You need to learn about uh, the other person. You need to uh, maybe learn about how your family of origin affects things. In a similar but different way, you know, if you've ever bought a home, you know that there are a lot of steps to that too. There are a lot of things you have to learn, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of things you have to sign, steps and signatures, uh, because it's important. So uh, as the people are getting ready to make this important commitment, this is, this is what God gives them, these instructions. He's to help the Israelites understand more about who he is and what the future is going to be like for them. So uh, there's a few things that I want to look at um, this morning, and, you know, it's not exactly linear, because uh, like I said, I'm, I'm hoping to just kind of connect it back into your Hebrews uh, study, but um, I, I want to look at how the tabernacle is showing God's presence uh, to these people, uh, how the tabernacle represents uh, a heavenly reality, and uh, three, uh, how the tabernacle was really built because people gave. And so I'm going to start actually with giving you some homework, so if you want some homework this week, you can read uh, all of Exodus chapters 25, 26, and 27. Those are all the detailed instructions uh, on how to build the tabernacle and how the furniture is supposed to go into it. Um, I, I do think it's one of those things that um, when we see the level of detail that God made sure to put into uh, his word for us, um, it's worth reflecting on. So, Just a little review uh, before we get into that, too. Um, in Exodus chapter 24, uh, Moses led the people in a ceremony to ratify this new covenant. Um, essentially, Moses, you know, reads them the Ten Commandments, and, uh, and then they take blood from a sacrifice. They, they sprinkle it on the people. They sprinkle it on the altar. Uh, and, and basically, um, the people pledge to obey the Ten Commandments. They, they, they pledge to enter into this a commitment with the Lord. But then God calls Moses up the mountain. Now, I think if we're going to understand that, we do also need to talk about what happened before that too. We believe the Bible teaches God created the world perfect, right? In its original state, the world and everything in it was, was good. It was very good. There was nothing bad and nothing sad. No death, no disease, no loneliness, fighting, hunger. Best of all, um, in this perfect world, God would come down and, and God would be present with Adam and Eve. God would walk and talk with them in the garden. God's presence was there in the garden, in the perfect world. But we also know uh, that our first parents did not obey God. They did not honor God by listening to the instructions he gave about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They decided to reject God rules, God's rule about what is good and what is bad. And really, uh, you know, the, the essence of, of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was uh, people wanting to decide for themselves what to call right and what to call wrong. I mean, I'm glad we don't have that problem today, right, Ryan? 
But because of that, they had to leave the garden. The whole earth came under the curse of sin because of that. And so what we find in the Genesis account is these two uh, warrior angels, special angels called cherubim, uh, guarded the way so that the people couldn't get back into the garden. Now, these, uh, these cherubim we find uh, in, in Scripture, in Psalm and Isaiah and Ezekiel, are really associated with God's presence, like his throne. Like in, like in some sense, there's these pictures uh, of, of God almost being enthroned on top of these uh, cherubim angels. So God made a promise that one day uh, one of the descendants of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. And so as we move through the book of Genesis, uh, many generations go by, right? And then we meet this guy named Abram. God calls him to follow him, and he does. God is pleased with Abraham, not because he was perfect or did everything right, but because he believed what God said. Because Abram, then Abraham, was a man that wanted to listen to God and follow his instructions and accept what God said was right and wrong over and above what uh, he believed was right and wrong. And so God made a promise to Abraham. He was going to make a whole nation out of Abraham and his descendants more than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And there's an important part of that promise as well, that through Abraham and his descendants and that nation, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. But more time passes, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. All those 12 sons with their families still believing the promises of God, end up in Egypt. Now, God continues to bless them, and they multiply uh, enough that Pharaoh becomes afraid and puts them under slavery. And then we meet Moses, right? Moses is this, uh, this, this, this leader that God chooses. He's the messenger God uses to go and confront Pharaoh and, and really confront the gods of Egypt, brings the plagues that, that really demonstrate God's supremacy. And then finally, Moses gets to lead the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and they, they end up at Mount Sinai where they make this covenant. Now, that promise that God made to Abraham uh, about blessing the whole earth was finally starting to take shape here, right? Because, because once they're this nation in the promised land, once they, uh, they, they're there, Like if anyone from anywhere in the world wanted to learn about God or or worship him, listen to his instruction, they would have a place to go, people that could help. And so uh, God speaks uh, to Moses from this mountain. Moses receives the law. The people pledge their loyalty, right? This new amazing relationship, like the God that rescued them, the God that saved them, like the God that intervened on their behalf. They're there. And then they get these instructions to build the tabernacle. And God was going to be with them. Like God's very presence was going to be there. Kind of like back in the garden. And so eventually when the people would take possession of the promised land, uh, God will choose the, the place, right? Jerusalem. And they'll build a temple, which is essentially a permanent version of their tabernacle. Now, there's, uh, we could go really deep on, uh, on all the symbolism in the, in the tabernacle, but 
because we can't go into all of it, uh, there are, like I said, just a few things I want to look at. So most importantly, I just want to look at how this sort of showed God's presence. Um, remember, the point of the tabernacle wasn't to show off to the world, right? The point of the tabernacle was for God to be present with his people. The, uh, the point was to keep the people close to his heart. And so if you were looking at the tabernacle and you were sort of moving from the outside in, you would start in the courtyard. And so you find the detail about this in chapter 27, 9 through 19. But the, the, the thing I want to highlight about this uh, is that as it relates to God's presence, one of the courtyard's main purposes was actually protection. It was to protect the people. Because even though God would dwell in the middle of these people, he was still holy. And so they essentially had to put a fence around it because God in his perfect holiness cannot coexist with sin. Now, they did a similar thing around Mount Sinai when, when God came to speak to Moses. They, they sort of fenced off the bottom of the mountain and no one was allowed to go up. Uh, they weren't even, uh, couldn't let their, their animals even go up. You know, if you think about it, that's uh, in a similar way, like when you drive past a big power substation, you know, they've got a, you know, big fence, keep, you know, high voltage, danger, keep out. If you violate that sign and warning and go inside, it goes badly for you. But that's also why in the courtyard, there's a big bronze altar. Now, this is where sacrifices were made for the sins of the people. The blood of a sacrifice is shed instead of the people's. Um, the biblical word for this is atonement. And I, I won't go super deep into that because I'm sure Sam and Ryan uh, have explained all this uh, to you guys before, especially as you're going through Hebrews. But just for simplicity's sake, I'll, I'll say it like this. When you have a relationship that's been broken... Something must be done to, 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 to restore an, an at one mint, right? So wrongs need to be made right. Restitution has to be made. And so um, we'll, we'll come back to that a little bit uh, later, but there's an altar there for that. Moving past the courtyard, we get to the holy place. In the holy place, there's a table with bread on it, there's a, a large lamp stand, there's an incense altar, there's the showbread. Now the lamp stand is pretty amazing. Um, if you've ever seen a menorah, you, you know, it's kind of that shape, um, but it's, it's made to resemble a tree. So you have this, this, this beautiful uh, big tree with branches and flowers. And and so if you, if you kind of move on from there into the, the holiest place, the holy of holies, uh, we find that in Exodus 25, 10 through 22. Starting at verse 21 of Exodus 25, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So notice that the top of the ark of the covenant has two angels on it, two angel statues, one on either side. And the, and the top part of that is called the mercy seat. 
Also notice that specifically the angels are cherubim. And so you sort of get this picture, this idea that, it, that essentially the holy of holies is, is, is like God's throne room on earth. Extremely sacred space with an extremely sacred artifact. But it is from that mercy seat that God was going to speak with Moses. God would meet with his people there. And so there's, we're, meant, we're meant to make these connections, you know. We're, we're meant not to miss that um, in Eden, in the Garden of Eden, the people rebelled against God, right? And so they were cut off from the tree of life and also cut off from God's presence. The cherubim were placed at the east gate of Eden so that they could not return. But now here we, we find the way the tabernacle is organized. There's one gate into the tabernacle on the east side. And listen to this about the curtains in Exodus 26.1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. So again, moving closer into this sacred space, like closer to the presence, the people, you know, you would come past these huge curtains with these images of the cherubim angels. And then inside, there's this golden lampstand, this big golden lampstand shaped like a tree. And then once again, in that center, the holiest uh, place, God would speak with his people again. And so I, I think if somehow we could read the Bible like with new eyes, you know, we, we could read it for the first time uh, and we sort of started in, in Genesis and, and, and uh, we're trying to make our way through the story, I think when we got to this part, there would be a lot of, like there would be excitement, like there would, there would be hope, like there's promise, you know? Like, like it's going back to the way it's supposed to be. So the second point, um, kind of following that thread, is that the tabernacle represents heavenly realities. Now, this is a little bit like, should, I think, blow our minds a little bit. Um, Throughout the passage, when God is giving Moses the detailed instructions of building the tabernacle, you find the phrase, uh, the pattern being shown to you on the mountain. Now, what's interesting is that this word for pattern, um, according to uh, some scholars, is more indicative of like a 3D model than a drawing, which, which means that God wasn't just dictating instructions to Moses. Moses. Moses wasn't just hearing words and writing them down, but it seems like Moses was actually seeing something, some of these things, some version of these things, and writing it down while he was up on the mountain for 40 days. Right? And so I think that's significant for us today, and even one of the reasons this is worth talking about, is because I, I think that tells us there is something really enduring and eternal about this. Right? Like, this wasn't just a temporary, like, oh, this was one episode where, you know, ancient Israel did this one thing, and then we never talk about it again. Um, again, you guys have been in the book of Hebrews. You know, you know that's not true. Um, so speaking of this moment... In Exodus, this is what Hebrews 9, uh, 19 through 24 says. 
For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So, again, that's, we have that atonement idea um, going on. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So, in some fashion, these things in the tabernacle uh, are, are copies of, of, of real things, like a, in a real place. And, and I, I mean, I don't know. I honestly don't know exactly how that works. But I know what I read here. The holy places made with hands are copies of the true things. And so, again, this is why I think there's value here. Because in studying the tabernacle, right, like we sort of get to peek into God's heavenly throne room. And I think that there's a sense that, that like that should lead us into, into some awe and wonder. Like that should lead us towards worship. Now, um, this also tells us, what this also tells us is that even all the way back in Exodus, God had a plan for redemption that was so much bigger uh, than sacrificing bulls and goats. And yet, those sacrifices, the sacrificial system he put in place, uh, was done to teach us something. Right? Like, like, we can learn something from that about how truly precious the ultimate sacrifice was. Which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, so I, I also, I, I don't want to rush over uh, verse 2 real quick. Um, the tabernacle was built. So, so this thing that we're talking about, this like glimpse into God's heavenly throne room, uh, part of the way God designed that to happen, like part of the way God designed that to be shown to the world and shown to the people, like the plan that God put in place for his presence to come down and be near to his people involved his people giving to make that happen. So two quick things. Uh, they gave from the heart. So God's people had to give freely. Verse 2, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Uh, also, you know, we read through that list. There's a, there's a lot of variety in that list of things. Some of it was very precious in nature. And so they, they you know, they give generously, a lot of different things. So um, Part of God's plan was that his people would give generously and his people would give freely. Now, we see this through the Bible, right? God, God loves a cheerful giver. Now, wouldn't, let me ask you this. Wouldn't God have had every right uh, to just dictate how much each family needed to contribute? I mean, because where exactly did they get all their stuff? They were slaves like five minutes ago, right? So they, the all only things they had when they came out of Egypt were the things that God had allowed them to get from the Egyptians that were uh, trying to get them out of there. And so I think absolutely God would have been well within rights to say, okay, well, you're going to give me this much and you're going to give me that much and 
Um, but that's not what he was after. God was after their heart. Wanted them to give generously, freely. And we see this too because the people didn't just give gold. They didn't just write a check and be done, right? Uh, we see some of these materials that they give to build this thing. They're animal hides. They're acacia wood. Now, tanning an animal skin takes time, right? Acacia wood can be difficult to process. Ryan, have you carved something out of acacia wood before? It's hard. It's a hard wood. So, this was time-sensitive endeavors. This was sweat and labor. And so, again, uh, God didn't just want, you know, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll drop a few bucks in the plate. The people were also giving God their time and their service as an offering, and they were giving it freely from their heart. Now, that's a pretty easy correlation for us today too, right? God asks us to give our offerings to him freely and from the heart. And when we give our tithes and offerings, it's, it's, it's a way that we can acknowledge that he was the one that ultimately provided everything that we have in the first place, right? Everything we have comes from God. It sort of keeps our hearts and our pride in check, doesn't it? So, you know, if we can be generous, especially towards the Lord and, and, and what the Lord's doing with our money, there's a good chance that we're not being controlled by it. So, uh, look, the tabernacle is this sign, right, of God's presence with his people. Like, it's this, this holy special place that's going to be unlike anywhere else in the world. A step back towards the perfection of the Garden of Eden, the perfect world that God had originally intended us to live in. A world where God could walk and talk with his creatures that he made in his own image. And so, I, I, again, I find it remarkable that, that God simply asks his people to give as, as they feel led. God's people built the tabernacle. They did finish it. If you've read through the book of Exodus, you know. Um, I mean, it's a little bumpy. It's a little touch and go. But they get there, and, you know, they, they, they finish it, and, and, and God, like, that Shekinah glory comes down, like, God's presence is there, and, I mean, we, I mean that's kind of like we, we, we get to end Exodus on, on that kind of note, like, like, they made it, you know, like, like God's there with them, and if, and if we could just end the story there, it it would be so much better than what actually happens, right? Because if you know the story, the story of God's people through the Old Testament, dare I say, uh, the story of God's people uh, up until those of us who are in this very room, uh, everything goes great for all of about five minutes. And then, we, and then the people fail, right? They sin. They don't obey. God's people in the Old Testament, they grumble and they complain. They want to be like the other nations. They don't want God to be their king. They want a king, right? It, like they want the great pyramid. They don't want the tent. 
Like, they, they don't necessarily want God's presence with them. Man, that should be hard for us to understand. That should be, like, hard for us to wrap our minds around. Right? And so, again, as, if we're looking at this story, like, what looks like the, like the real hope is finally here that like there's restoration coming to this world that uh, even, even in the first half of the first book of the Bible, like you can see the world is just get ravaged by the curse of sin, right? And yet it ends in failure. And I wonder if maybe you can relate to that. You know, there's so many times that I think in our lives that it just, it seems like we've, we're finally going to make it, you know? Now, whether that's like, oh, you know what? I finally met Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Or I finally, you know, finally finished my degree. I can go get the job that I was, I was meant to have. We put a lot of energy in our life our resources into some of those things. But we got to remember that, you know, God saved Israel, right? Like salvation, God, God, God's salvation was so dramatic, right, in the Exodus story. Like the, the people are oppressed, they're in bondage, they are powerless, they have nothing to offer him, they have no way to fight against their oppressors, there's, there's nothing they could do. And yet God comes in and God saves We, I mean, we believe that, that that works with us too, right? Like when we are dead in sin and, uh, and uh, our hearts are spiritually dead, God came in. And he didn't do that because we had something we could offer him. And so, but then we see people, we see God's people return to their old ways all the time. And perhaps you've done that as well, you know? Sort of tried to return to Eden on your own terms and not God's. And I think that's why there's, uh, that's why the tabernacle is such good news, right? That, that's why the idea, like just the idea that God has this desire, like this very strong desire that will not be thwarted, will not be stopped, no matter how many times people fail, everybody else fails, God has this desire to be with and to be near his people. And so, yes, God is perfectly holy. He cannot coexist with sin. He's got a solution for that too, doesn't he? Again, you guys are the Hebrews uh, experts, but if I may review with you, Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, and through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if by the blood of goats and bulls uh, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes uh, of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Friends, God's work has always been about grace. Even in the Old Testament, 
God's dealing with his people uh, is grace, right? God, God, didn't, God didn't come to Egypt and say, uh, hey, if you guys will obey me and keep these laws, I'll go ahead and rescue you out of Egypt, right? That's not how it worked. God showed up and saved them. He rescued them. And then, so then God says, I, I have rescued you because I love you and I have a desire uh, to have a relationship with you, to be present and near to you. And so here, are, uh, here, here is how you can live in, uh, according to God's, uh, God's ways and not man's ways. So grace first, then the instruction. But even that didn't work, did it? And so, again, God's not going to be stopped no matter how many times we fail. So the only way, right, was for God to come himself. Like the good shepherd came to seek the sheep who were lost. And that's why we sing about our Savior. That's why we praise the name of Jesus. That's why... Uh, you know, we, we, we encourage one another with the gospel every week as often as we can. Because we were all spiritually dead in sin. We had nothing to offer God. But if you're here and you have put your faith in Jesus, it's only because he loved you and he saved you. But, but then what? Like, what do we do with that? I mean, there's a lot we could maybe do with that. But Philippi Church, I'll just give you two things uh, before uh, we, we get done. Now, this is simple, and that's all I got for you. I'm a simple guy. Um, number one, have you believed the gospel? Now, again, that's a simple question. I think our knee-jerk reaction to all of that is always going to be yes. Like, I'm here. I'm in church, Brian. Like, I'm in church. I believe the gospel. But do you really, like, in this, like, right now, like, do you believe that the God of the universe who created everything actually wants to be, like, near you? You know, not, not just like, oh, yeah, God wants to be with his people in general. Like, God, God loves the church in general. Now, if you are saved, you are part of the church. You know, that individualism is poison. But, um... But it's not just, you know, my, my value to God is, is not just as a number. Like, like, the gospel tells us that, like, God loved you enough. Like, he wants to be near you. Like, to, to, to dwell in you, right? Temples of the Holy Spirit. Like, and if that doesn't, like, if that stops being amazing to us, like, we should probably check our spiritual pulse a little bit. So the second thing um, I want to say is, uh, if so, like if you do believe the gospel, which we just talked about it, everybody I think does, um, how is he calling you to serve him? Right? So, if according to Hebrews 9, 
the blood of the Savior has secured eternal redemption, right? Like, in order to purify our conscience, to serve the living God. Like, what does that look like for you? Like, again, if, if you can sort of get over the th- threshold of, you know, this, uh, like, this salvation thing is pretty amazing. How do you serve the living God? Um, I mean, we could give a lot, you know, we could give a few different uh, things there. I'm sure Ryan could get you plugged in uh, to various ministries uh, at the church here. That's a great way to serve the Lord through serving through the church. But that also might just be um, maybe you've got some things in your own uh, personal life. Um, you, need to, you need to spend some more time uh, in, in prayer with the Lord, just giving the Lord time. Maybe you need to be uh, a little more uh, aware of, of, of what's going on in, uh, in the, the way that you serve your family in the name of the Lord, right? Serve the Lord by serving your family. Um, but sort of along that, like, so, I mean, that's a question you should be asking regularly. Next, what's your next step? That's a good, talk to Ryan, he'll get you your next step. But, but it, sometimes it's harder for us to maybe discern what this, what that is, because, you know, again, I think a lot of us, we would say, yeah, yes, I believe, yes, I serve, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I mean, I greet once every other month, I mean, that, that's serving, right, Ryan? Um, but sometimes we have to give it a little bit of thought. Like, like what are the things that we, are, that we are putting, investing our lives in? Like, what are the things that we really are putting everything we have in in order to maybe get some worth and some value out of? Because, you know, if we're not careful, we can take something good um, architecture is a good thing. You know, building a, building a beautiful building is a good thing. But sometimes along the way, you know, it stops being a, a, a good thing that you're working on and it starts to become the thing that I'm really pull, getting my identity out of, right? And so then it becomes a thing of we're trying to build a, a pyramid, right? Like we're, we're trying to pick the pyramid over the tent, Um, I'll invite uh, the worship leader back up here. And uh, we'd just like to encourage you. You know, we, we, uh, we sort of started in Genesis, this idea that God wants uh, to be present with his people, wants his presence to be in our lives. And I think if we go to Revelation, Re- Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people 
and God himself will be with them as their God. I was at the beginning. That's going to be the end. Let's make sure we're putting our time and our energy there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, again, we thank you for uh, the day that you have given us. Lord, we thank you for uh, just a reminder that you desire to be near your people. God, help us uh, not to take for granted. Help us not to become numb or callous to the amazing miracle of the gospel. God, that you would care enough about redeeming uh, sinful and rebellious humanity, that, that you would come to earth, that you would die an atoning death. Lord, we thank you and praise you. Uh, you did not stay dead. We thank you that uh, you also offer new life through your spirit in each and every uh, person who calls on your name. So Lord, if there's areas in our lives, Lord, where maybe we have grown cold or, or, or numb to these things, I, I, I pray for uh, just a, a, a warmth, a rekindling. Lord, if there's, if there's areas in our lives, whether it's, Lord, career or family or relationship or finances, whatever it is, God, if there's things in our lives that we have started, uh, Lord, really trying to build monuments that will last, that'll make a name for ourselves, Lord, help us to let go of these things. We give you thanks and we give you praise. In Jesus' name.